When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following is a Podcast One Minnesota production. For those who simply can't get enough talk about the Vikings, we present Bonus Chatter. Bonus Chatter about your favorite team that's unscripted, unfiltered, and uninterrupted. This is another edition of 1500 ESPN's Purple Podcast. Hey there, and welcome into a special edition of the Purple Podcast, along with Eric Eager from Pro Football Focus. A couple of analytics questions as we head into the the next year. And the biggest place that the analytics are playing a role for me in how I view uh, this Vikings team is right at the quarterback position. Because Sam Bradford set the record for completion percentage last year, but there's a little bit of smoke and mirrors involved there because his yards per attempt were toward the bottom part of the league. And what I'm trying to figure out this year is just how good Sam Bradford is and should he be considered a franchise quarterback or was last year just an okay season that maybe on paper looks a little better than it is? Uh, But I'm having trouble, Eric, trying to project exactly where he's going to go, whether it's going to be the same story as last year or if all the other weapons and things on the offensive line, how much they could actually improve his game. So what is your analytics breakdown and opinion on Sam Bradford as a long-term quarterback for the Vikings? Well, I think from a, as a as a year to year guy um, to at least get you an opportunity to to win 10 11 games and make the playoffs um, I think he can be somebody that you count on when I've been doing quarterback analysis this offseason he's fallen kind of into the same cluster as guys like Alex Smith and Carson Wentz and um you know guys like that that you know don't make a lot of really poor throws but also don't necessarily make as big of a share of those, you know, uh, you know, very plus throws. And so there's always sort of a limitation to that. And what I've noticed about that cluster of quarterbacks is it's very, very rare, not only for them to to win the Super Bowl, but even to make deep runs into the playoffs. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, if you have a roster like Kansas city, you know, Alex Smith can get you to 12 wins. um, But anything sort of falls off the table there and, you know, you're you're also capable of, you know, winning only six, seven games. Um, whereas, you know, you look at the other side of the coin, you look at guys like Jameis Winston, Cam Newton, and, and sometimes like guys like Andrew Luck, guys that maybe have their fair share of interceptable passes, but also make a lot more, um, you know, down the field throws that, uh, you know, that it seems like they, they can make and the elite guys can make, they, the elite guys make them more often. 
Um, there's just not as big of there's not as low of a ceiling on guys like Winston Newton and and, and Luck, uh, Carson Palmer also in that group than there is on the Bradfords, the Smiths, the Wenses, and so. Uh, you know, I'd be I I wouldn't necessarily consider him a long term option uh, if there was somebody like that uh, in play for the Vikings. What really stands out to me about Bradford is that his numbers, when making those throws, were really good when he was going down the field, especially when targeting Adam Thielen. But in terms of his completion percentage, uh, even yards per attempt, when he was throwing the ball over 15, 20 yards. He was usually really, really effective. It's just that he wasn't throwing it there that often. And then in those intermediate routes, uh, he was one of the poorer quarterbacks in the league. So he was either completing really short passes or longer passes, but everything in between, his numbers weren't very good. Uh, I mean, with better protection, could you see him going down the field more often and that boosting his numbers and getting him up into that category or not? Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I, I I always thought to myself that, you know, a quarterback, there's a lot of things a quarterback can't control, and then we sort of have to get around those things, um, you know, by either creating a better offensive line or, or, or getting a running game so that you can incorporate play action. Um, and the more and more I've thought about it, the more and more I've, I, I've realized that a quarterback actually dictates a lot more than, than we think. So, you know, Bradford, his offensive line, as bad as it was last year, was basically in the middle of the pack. You know, he faced 13, you know, he's the 13th most highest pressured quarterback on on a purse play basis. So in some in some sense, he kind of did control that a little bit by getting the ball out so quickly, which I think is also would would speak to what you're what you said, which is, you know, he's just not he's just not willing to stand in there and make that difficult throw. And then you have guys like, you know, Andrew Luck faced uh, the most pressure in the league. But I think that's also a product of how he plays the game. He hangs onto the ball long so that he can make those down, to f- down the field throws. Russell Wilson, very similar. He was the third most pressured quarterback a year ago. And again, sort of overcoming those things because he's a really good quarterback. Um, guys like, you know, over the years like uh, Tom Brady have had, you know, a wide array of offensive line talent in front of them and always seem to kind of make it work because, again, they dictate the pace of the game. They sort of make the best of the short throws when they have to have to make those. They make the best of the good offensive lines they're behind by you know stretching the pocket out a little bit, uh, so on and so forth. So I think that the question of whether or not Sam Bradford could perform better with a better supporting cast is open, but I don't necessarily think that it's it's one of those questions where like oh it just it's just a matter of putting better players around him he's going to succeed in that event i i think a quarterback has way more control than that bradford is such an odd case to me because he's maybe the only quarterback i've ever seen to be approaching 30 years old as a number 1 overall draft pick and still have people say you know we're not really sure what he is I mean, he's been in the league now quite a long time. Injuries have held him back. They stole basically two years away from him. But I feel like a lot of Viking fans want to toss away everything that happened before he was playing for the Eagles, basically. Now, the league changed a little bit during that time. So averaging 6.2 yards per attempt was a little less bad, I guess, than it would be today. Uh, because the yards per attempt, even over the last couple of years, have gone up and up and up and up. 
But, I mean, looking at the last two seasons, I feel like there have been opportunities for him to get his team in the playoffs or make some of those big plays or make some of those big throws that just have not come through. And I wonder about, no matter what you give him, short of Washington's offense last year, which was just outrageous, best offensive line in the league, four great wide receivers and one of the best tight ends in the league, short of giving him all that... I have a tough time seeing a different quarterback from what he's put out there over the last two years. And to me, that's not a guy who you give a five-year, $125 million contract to. No, he's the kind of guy that you have as an available player in week one when another team's quarterback snaps his leg. (laughs) Right. Well, that's another thing too, isn't it? I mean, there's a reason that Philadelphia – wanted to move along and it wasn't just because they they changed offensive coordinators what what do you think about the impact of pat Shermer and the west coast offense on sam bradford i was just taking a peek at his numbers before and after Shermer took over and it's debatable how much of Shermer's offensive concepts were involved in the first couple of weeks but his numbers really weren't that different i mean i think that our perception was that Shermer did a better job than North Turner because we saw those two disastrous games against Philadelphia and Chicago that were just baffling with what was going on on offense. But we almost set aside that Bradford threw an interception uh, at the goal line against Philadelphia. We set aside that he missed a wide open Stefan Diggs on a deep ball over the middle against Chicago that we almost just gave Bradford a pass for those two bad games and entirely put them on North Turner instead of really looking at them, I think a little closer and seeing some of the opportunities that were missed there. Right. I mean, there, I mean, there was really no excuse for them to score below 20 points twice against Detroit for one. Um, and then a lot of, a lot of his, a lot of his yards and everything against, for example, green Bay and Indianapolis and even Chicago. I mean, you could almost throw those games out in the sense that when the game, when the game was actually close in some of those games, he like, perform poorly and then when the games are out of reach then he just chunked up a bunch of yards and then the, the Chicago game Chicago barely given up I think one of the one of the even more interesting things is that Sam Bradford was the second highest rated quarterback in the NFL last year when pressured so it's even one of those things where like we're we're all we're worried we're mitigating something for which Bradford actually performed above you know like hmm. he I wouldn't call it luck necessarily, but there's some noise associated with a guy who is not one of the better passers in the league, all of a sudden being one of the better passers in the league in a scenario that we've, we've shown statistically is not particularly stable. Mm -hmm. So, so if he regresses to the mean, like, you know, we, we we got good quarterbacks in the league, like Ben Roethlisberger only had a 69.8 passer rating last year under pressure, you know, and Ben Roethlisberger is a better quarterback than Sam Bradford. So if even Sam Bradford regresses down to that, you know, you take those 100, you know, 150 throws and you regress those down. I mean, that's going to be, I mean, we're going to see some results that I think are going to surprise a lot of Vikings fans. Um, and, and so, you know, I, that's why I'm a little bit skeptical of this idea that for one, that he can, that he can improve substantially under Shermer because it didn't look like that happened a year ago or that Shermer could offer anything that would actually help him statistically because he's going to mitigate a lot of situations where Bradford was actually weirdly good last year. 
Hmm. Uh, the big picture question for this year, even just ignoring his contract, is how far they can go with Sam Bradford. Let's let's assume, and it's a big assumption, we'll get to it later, that the defense is just as good as it was last year. So it's not perfect. It's not um, you know the eighty-five Bears, but it's pretty pretty good. Let's say top five in, in points against. Can he take the offense if it's better around him? deep into the playoffs to the playoffs, not to the playoffs. Where do you see that? Yeah. I mean, I certainly think that they could go 11 and five. If you know the, the year before Teddy Bridgewater, you know, they, however good Teddy is, they did not unleash him very much during the season. Uh, Their defense was, I think just slightly below what it was in 2015 for most of the year, 2016 for most of the year. And they went 11 and five and they, they, almost won their first playoff game, you know, again, a very like, you know, lucky situation that they played in the cold weather against a team that kind of had a similar profile as them. Um, so I, you know, but I, I have a hard time seeing them get past round two with, with Sam Bradford only because, you know, if you look game to game in the NFL playoffs, it's almost always, if there's a court disparity in the ability of the quarterbacks, the team with a good quarterback always, you know, wins. Like I, uh, I was listening to, to, this is kind of a, a little bit of a digression, but I was listening to Kansas city radio and they were one in 11 in their last 12 playoff games or something huh. like that. And they went through and said, the only time the chiefs have won a playoff game since 1993 Brian was when Hoyer, they had the right? quarterback advantage. Exactly. It was the one time they had the quarterback advantage, you know? So when you play a playoff game with Alex Smith against Ben Roethlisberger, what do you expect to happen? And, and I think that the same thing's true with Sam Bradford. If, if you know, if you play, if you go to Atlanta with Sam Bradford as your quarterback, I mean, like, what do you expect to happen? You know, their their right. quarterback is far better than yours. Right. Yeah, and that's going to be a, a a pretty tough uphill battle when you have in the NFC a handful of really really good quarterbacks, including uh, Matt Ryan as well. So let, let's move on to something that still pertains to Sam Bradford. But my second biggest question is. How much of a difference will the offensive line improvements make? Uh, Because I think that's being touted as what the big issue was last year for Sam Bradford. And as you mentioned, he still performed pretty well under pressure. Uh, But I think that reasonably speaking, probably uh, did hinder um, his ability to throw the ball deep and to take deeper drops and things like that. So now he's got a couple of extra running backs that he didn't have last year. And he's got two tackles who at least know how to play football. (laughs) What what difference can that make in this offense overall in terms of just how many points they score? Yeah. And I, I, I've sort of looked at this from the, the version of wins, but you, you know, you could, as you wrote in your article, you can kind of translate that into points. Right. So um, I found that last year, you know, the, the best offensive line, which was Dallas, if you added up their like sort of wins above average, it was about uh, two thirds of a win. And, you know, and, and again, some of those guys, like the, the best tackles were about a third of the win, of a win themselves. And then, you know, the best center was Travis Frederick. He was about a third of a win. And then I think they had a couple offensive linemen that weren't quite as uh, stout. And, and I think they had a below average lineman in there. Um, but, What's really interesting is what I've found is that a is that a really bad offensive lineman 
can hurt a team far far worse than a really good offensive line can elevate a team. And so, you know, a guy like TJ Clemmings was almost negative two-thirds of a win himself. And so if you translate that into points, that's about, you know, 20, 25 points. Um, so if you just put an average offensive lineman in his place, you know, that might get you to a position where, you know, now you're in the nine-win range and you're competing with Detroit for a playoff spot, you know. Um, so, you know, I would say, like you, you said, getting two tackles that know how to play football, uh, the price was steep, but in terms of, like, from a, a bang-for-your-buck perspective, I think it was a good move for the Vikings. Well, how about the running back spot? And I know that Delvin Cook is a real wild card here because we don't know uh, how good he's going to be right away. I, I think that there's some hype uh, for the possibility that he's the next Ezekiel Elliott, but we don't really know until we see that. But I do think, Eric, that the running game has to be better than it was last year. And, and I ran kind of an analysis on this, trying to figure out how many points it would be worth. But Latavius Murray, a proven NFL running back, Jarek McKinnon, I think, has to be better than he was last year because of how often he got put in bad situations by the offensive line, the tight end not blocking very well. Uh, I think he got a raw deal last year. So if they can, if they can run the ball better, uh, are we looking at an offense that ends up in the top half of the league, even if Sam Bradford isn't one of the best quarterbacks, even if he is just the same player that he's been the last two years? I feel like this could be one of the better running teams in the league. Right, and I think a lot of it, a lot of it stems from the fact that it, things just fit. Like, you know, Dalvin Cook can run from the shotgun, you know, those kinds of things. Latavius Murray is a guy who can – uh, score at the at the goal line, you know, 12 touchdowns a year ago. And then if Jarek McKinnon's actually used properly, if he's not run, you know, you've had the Warren Sharp statistic about how much he ran against eight man fronts. If, if, if they're, if they're using you utilizing everybody well, then I think that it's even more the case where not only can they improve from just being as awful as they were a season ago to average, but they could also actually be a plus running team. Um, but even in that case, I mean, I saw, you know, with, with my wins above average kind of, uh, model, you know, even like a guy like, you know, Ezekiel, it's worth about a third of a win just because the running game is just not as important in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to get, to get to be a guy who's closing in on like a win above replacement, you're, you have, you're thinking about a guy like David Johnson, who's most, a lot of what he does is out of the backfield. Um, just because the passing game is, is really the way to win in the NFL. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm personally intrigued by what Cook and Murray and, and McKinnon can do this year, but I'm a little tempered by how much it could actually contribute to them being, uh, you know, one of the upper echelon teams in the league. I think that there is something to be said for each player's ability to come out of the backfield too, though, as part of this. Because last year, if I had a big criticism for Pat Shermer, it was – that Jarek McKinnon was used as a checkdown option and almost a checkdown option only. And I think this year there's an opportunity to use these three running backs who can all catch the ball out of the backfield as, I mean, even lining up in the slot or having two running backs. Maybe I'm just being too optimistic about Pat Shermer's creativity, uh, but he was the offensive coordinator for Chip Kelly who used a lot of two running back sets, a lot of uh, running backs going out for passes out of the backfield. And I'm interested to see if we see that. And I, and I think that that kind of increases the value of the guys that they brought in here. 
Yep, and to even put that in 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 a even bigger perspective, as pass protectors, Murray is better than uh, Asiata, McKinnon, and uh, Peterson were all at the ago. same time. He's better all, than all right. three of them blocking the same guy. That's right, and so <laughs> and that just and that makes that makes their ability to you know allow Bradford to take deeper drops, hit hit guys like you know Thielen and Diggs. We were talking about how. Last year, he had a 77 and 78% completion percentage throwing to Diggs and Thielen, respectively, right? So you're giving Bradford an even bigger opportunity to go down the field to those two guys, um, and that helps too, right? And, and yeah, as, as you said about McKinnon, for example, like in 2015, you know, the Vikings' offense was kind of stagnant for a, a quite a bit, and, and people remember the Chicago game and then subsequently the Giants game where uh, McKinnon was used – as a receiver and really added a spark to the offense. And, uh, and even in the green Bay game, when they sealed the NFC North, they tried to have him on a wheel route against Jake Ryan against the Packers and Teddy missed him, but it was again, a design pass play for McKinnon, right. uh, which I think he has the skill set to get open, especially against linebackers uh, and safeties in the NFL. Uh, it would make for a good, uh, a good improvement to their offense to be able to put those guys in space where they're more effective. What is, what always comes to mind with an offense like this, and it's kind of the same way that most good defenses work, but that if everything is right, it should be pretty good. But when you don't have a quarterback like Aaron Rodgers or Ben Roethlisberger and on and on, if something goes wrong, it's harder to overcome. And so when I'm looking at the possibility of Jarek McKinnon being used that way, if he isn't used that way, or if he gets hurt, or if Delvin Cook gets hurt, or if Stefan Diggs or Adam Thielen, I, I feel like every moving part has to be locked into place. You've got to have your Riley Reef and Mike Remmers. If they go down, then I don't know what's behind them. Rashad Hill, Jeremiah Searles, like it's not a great picture, but teams with elite quarterbacks don't tend to worry that much about those things unless it's someone like Jordy Nelson, which could really hurt you. Uh, but even then, Aaron Rodgers wins a playoff game in that sort of situation. I, I think if all goes right, then you could have Bradford still being Bradford and an offense that ends up in the top 15 or even maybe the top 10 if it goes really right and Delvin Cook is what uh, they want him to be. But you could also see this being disastrous as well. Even if the quarterback is healthy, usually you only see massive disaster if the quarterback gets hurt and you've got to play some backup all year and then it's really bad. Uh, but you could even see a guy or two getting hurt or schematically doing a lot of the same things that didn't work last year and this offense pretty much being stagnant. Right. I mean, you see it when you look at either pro football focus grades or or just simple statistics like – if you have an elite quarterback, like you get thrown into a bucket worth of teams for which the average number of wins is 10. That's the start of the conversation, right? And if you have a bad quarterback or a, just even simply like a Bradford type quarterback, you have to have eight other things go, go right in order for the conversation to start at 10 wins. Right. You know, mo right. usually those conversations start at six, seven wins. And that's because there are other, you know, there are just things that go wrong. So Vikings fans, I think we're all, you know, uh, kind of like, well, you know, what about the Blair Walsh missed extra point against Detroit? What about the, uh, you know, what about the issues that they had against Washington and, you know, uh, the Detroit game and, you know, all the other Detroit game and all these kinds of things. Well, when you have a quarterback 
that constantly has you on the margin all the time, then you know you're going to get the coin flips and the and the and the teams, you know the teams fans remember the Detroit's and the Washingtons uh, and those types of games, and they forget the Carolinas and the Tennessee games where there are often or defensive and special teams touchdowns, you know, right. that elevate you when your quarterback isn't very good. So, and that's really it, right? The 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 teams that have the fantastic quarterbacks just give themselves so many so much margin for error that a lot of the more random things don't really affect them as much. Well, speaking of the defense, unless you've got another thought on um, where the offense could go with improved weapons, is that pretty good? You cool? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I think Thielen and Diggs are really are are really valuable, and and maybe maybe they can get more out of the tight end position, whether it be the the current guy that's there improving or somebody coming in and. Uh, somebody coming in and, and being productive either on the outside or as a blocker. I think that there there's a little bit of room there, but not as much as there is in the running game, hence why we talked about it so much. Yeah, I think that there is some intrigue with Cordero Patterson not being brought back. Um, I might have wanted Cordero Patterson to come back because I know exactly what I have there. Uh, and I would want Michael Floyd too. He's going to miss the first four games, but in terms of his skill set being to stretch the field, uh, I would have liked him and Patterson to give you kind of a yin and a yang option there to mix in and out, as opposed to toward the end of the year, they were asking Cordero Patterson to run routes, and it was ugly. Uh, I think it was Thanksgiving Day, maybe. I'm picturing it indoors. that he, he had a few times where he almost caused interceptions himself by not battling for the ball, not running the proper route, not being open at all, despite his speed. I mean, those are problems for him, but when he got the ball in his hands, he was pretty explosive. So I feel like letting him walk at the price that he left for, I think that's a hard thing to make up for. I think it's not easy to just find guys who are so special when they get the ball. And uh, that that generally adds not only points, but an extra wrinkle. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I I, I think you're right about, you know, we're we're looking at a league now where receivers rotate in and it's not just, these are my top three receivers. It's, you know, we, you have a receiver for blocking in the run game. You have a receiver for, you know, all the gadgety things you have a, you know, a guy who can play split end, like, like Michael Floyd and all of those things. So that, you know, like you said, you can have a guy, you, you can, you can kind of keep the defense on, on their toes while not necessarily keeping the offensive coordinator on his toes. Cause he knows exactly sort of what happens you know what? What you have in Patterson, what you have in Floyd. I think Floyd's got a little bit of an issue with with his hands, but I still think probably more of a sure thing than uh, than Laquan Treadwell at this point. Uh, uh, right. I it's it's going to be interesting to see because Patterson did give them a lot of big plays that I don't know where those are going to come from this year. Yeah, maybe Jarek McKinnon takes over some of that role. Um, onto the defense, two players I want to focus on here more than anybody else. That's. Xavier Rhodes and Daniil Hunter, because I think what we have locked in for those guys is the same season that they had in 2016. And I'm not sure that either player is going to be able to repeat exactly what they did last year. That doesn't mean I'm down on Daniil Hunter or Xavier Rhodes. I think that they are top end talents, some of the best players in the entire NFL. I think the Vikings should pay Xavier Rhodes, but also if you go team by team through last year, and look at the number one wide receivers that the Vikings actually faced, and then look at the list for this year, 
it's a lot different. Antonio Brown is going to match up with Rhodes this year. Julio Jones is going to match up with him. And last year, past Odell Beckham, who really just lost his mind during that game, who's the next best? DeAndre Hopkins that, that went up against uh, Xavier Rhodes? Not saying he had some easy road. Get it? Ro- easy road? <laughs> Anyway, uh, (laughs) not saying that it was just like on cruise control for him, but that we should expect maybe those numbers, that number that got thrown around that uh, he allowed something like a 38 quarterback rating against. I wouldn't expect that for him again, just because of the level of players he's going to have to go against. Yeah, and, you know, how fluky interceptions are. You know, they have a huge impact on passer rating allowed but right. are generally not stable. But you're right. I mean, the the fact is is there have been times in Xavier Rhodes' career where he's matched up against the number one receiver uh, on the opposing team, and, and he didn't fare well. You know, in 2015, they eventually had to take him away from that role because he struggled so much. Um, and, you know, he, he figured out the penalty issue last year. Uh, which was a which is a big deal for him, but right, the, they didn't exactly face a murderer's row in terms of in terms of uh, you know the schedule. But you're going to see guys like Mike Evans and Julio Jones and uh, and those types of players on the schedule this year. And even if Xavier Rhodes, if all the processes are still right and in place for him, he's still probably going to regress to the mean statistically. And hopefully, the Vikings are you know as a team are are smart enough to determine whether or not Xavier Rhodes regresses to the mean because he played worse or regresses to the mean because that's just the way it works in the world. Right. And, um, and you know, so I, I firmly believe it'll be the, be the latter. I firmly believe that he'll, he'll be a pretty good cornerback. Um, but it'll just be one of those things where it's kind of up and down. You look at like, you look at a guy like Richard Sherman, for example, in his career, uh, you know, passer rating allowed. It's it's one year it's 57, one year it's 48, one year it's nonsense at 31, right? But mm-hmm. then it goes up to 39 and then 67 and 68, right? So these things fluctuate. I don't think any of us would say, you know, uh, you know, Richard Sherman's no longer a really good corner because one year he allowed a 31 passer rating <laughs> and the next year he allowed a 67, you know what right. I'm saying? So uh, same thing. With, I think Patrick Peterson had some issues because he had diabetes, but kind of the same thing where like it just kind of when you shadow number one receivers and when you and when they put a lot on your plate defensively, um, it's just going to be one of those things that fluctuates. And, and even though you're good, like Patrick Peterson get, gave up an 80.7 passer rating a year ago. Does that mean he's half as good as Xavier Rhodes? Of course not. You know, um, it just means that, you know, he might have dropped an interception that Xavier Rhodes caught or. Or, or one time Xavier Rhodes was beaten and that ball got dropped when it should have been a touchdown. You know, there, there's random things that uh, just cause the statistical instabilities there. Yeah, one of his interceptions was basically a punt by Eli Manning. Just threw the ball way up in the air and Odell Beckham had turned the wrong way or something like that and Rhodes was just there to catch it. So those sort of random breaks sometimes don't always happen. With Daniil Hunter, I'm really interested because I think he's going to get a lot more snaps than he did last year. It's kind of mind-blowing to think that he only had around 60% of the total snaps uh, for a guy that was in the top three in total sacks. Now, there's a case to be made that more snaps, he should end up with more sacks. But there also comes along with 12 and a half sacks a lot more attention uh, than there was last year. So I'm curious with pass rushers, 
where they tend to go, how much they tend to fluctuate. And if after a big year, sometimes they do drop off because everybody starts to kind of dial in. Yeah. And so just to kind of shamelessly plug our website, but on profootballfocus.com, <laughs> there was an article about how sacks are kind of overrated and pressures are sort of kind of where to look. Now, I, I, you know, sacks are, are more valuable than pressures, clearly, because you can you can cause a turnover with a sack and you can basically end a drive with a sack. So I'm not here to say that sacks are not are overrated or whatever, but um, oftentimes you kind of look and and see kind of like, you know, for example, the one that I always like to put, point out is um, with Everson Griffin, kind of a very similar career path in that, you know, he was he was playing 55 to 60 percent of the snaps when the Vikings uh, had Robison and Jared Allen as their starting defensive ends. And in 2012, including playoffs, he had nine sacks um, and 12 hits and 24 hurries. And everybody, you know, was very, you know, pleased with his development. And then in the next year, 2013, he only had, I believe, five and a half sacks. Mm -hmm. um, but he had something like 40 pressures, 47 pressures. So he was more productive on a down-to-down -down basis. Um, but the, he just didn't get home as much, which, again, those are, those are three plays the whole season, three and a half plays the whole season, right? And that's, you know, obviously that's not a as important as down to down, just beating the guy in front of you. Um, and of course, like, you know, the Vikings saw through that and gave him a huge contract and the starting and the starting right defensive end job, which is great. Um, and he rewarded them with a couple double digit sack seasons. I think that the same thing could happen to Hunter, where not only does he get more attention, um, but he could even be a better player. And we might not see the 16, 17, 18 sacks that everybody's like projecting him to have. Uh, on Vikings Twitter, just because, you know, for what, you know, like you said, they might be chipping him more, they might be doubling him more, but just sacks are just random things. And so, you know, if he falls from 12 sacks to eight sacks, we're going to be upset about four plays over a 1,000 snap season. <laughs> yeah. Now, the one thing that Hunter did really well last year that I didn't, don't think he got much credit for and maybe should have just been playing a lot more in general because of this was he was good against the run. And the games that I went back and watched, and then this matches up with the pro football focus score as well, uh, he was one of their better run stoppers. When they ran in his direction, he took care of business. He just has this incredible strength and ability to reach out with his giganto arms and hold tackles exactly where he wants them and then move them when he needs to, which is good for pass rushing, and it's great for run stopping. And that is where... I wonder if we should have been criticizing a little more. The defense was so good for most of the year that we weren't really looking for, um, you know, issues. But the fact that Brian Robinson played as much as he did probably should have been a little more criticized last year. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's always a little bit of that as one of, of Mike Zimmer's weaknesses is that he, he kind of has given people lifetime achievement awards in terms of playing time. <laughs> Uh, I, yeah. you know, I, I always thought that I called Chad Greenway's snaps legacy snaps for the last probably two, three years, just because, you know, he had kind of lost it and, you know, he had a great career, but kind of a, a bad couple seasons to end it. And I think Brian Robinson certainly hasn't fallen off the table in the way that, uh, in the way that Greenway had, which I think makes it harder, right? When you're not, you're, you're elevating from 
a good defensive end to somebody who has the potential to be a fantastic defensive end, right? Mm-hmm. It's harder to do that than to take a player who's playing awful and put in an average player. Um, but that is certainly something that I think that might be criticizable. You know, last season he had, we, we call run stops, basically, you know, plays against the run where the defense makes a successful play. So whether tackling in front of the, the down marker, um, you know, those kinds of things. And he, on a per snap basis was the most uh, efficient uh, run defender there. So he was beating out guys like Brandon Graham, Sheldon Richardson, you know, Michael Bennett, you know, guys that are just, you know, household names as defensive ends and Danelle Hunter, as you said, I think, you know, said it perfectly, just those long arms, just kind of, you know, T-Rexifying tackles uh, <laughs> and, you know, and, and kind of, and that, which also helps them in the pass rush, but, but in terms of just like standing a guy up and, and being a, uh, you know, a really strong defender on the front side, but he also is very, very fast and can chase plays down from the backside when he's not blocked. And I think that also helps him as well. I think we agree no matter what his sack number is, he's going to be one of the best at the position this year. Yeah, th- I think I think that's a I think that's a very good, good uh, uh, characterization. And hopefully everything kind of works itself out where if Hunter's not getting the sacks, the pressure still helps, um, you know, the defense, whether it be forcing turnover somewhere else or forcing sacks into other players and things like that. But sometimes that's not the case either. And sometimes the defense takes a, a step back just for random issues. And I, and I hope the Vikings brass and the Vikings fans uh, don't necessarily overreact to that. Let's move on to the fourth analytics 2017 analytics Vikings question that I have for you, Eric, um, the rookies, they drafted um, 74 different players, uh, which will make for a really interesting camp. It was what? 10, 11, uh, double-digit draft picks will be competing for spots in camp. Only a couple of these guys, I think, can make a really big impact right away. Delvin Cook, Pat Elfline, Rodney Adams, potentially Stacy Coley, and Bucky Hodges. Maybe the offensive guys uh, can work their way in. Uh, where they were drafted, history, what does it say about what you, we should expect from these guys? Because I, I think, at least for the first two picks, the expectations are sky-high. Yeah, and I think that that's a little bit unfortunate, not only for just if you're a Vikings fan kind of projecting forward, but also, uh, you know, uh, for the, the players themselves, because I think if you're subject to, you know, you know un, unfair expectations, often that can be uh, negative as well. But, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think for one, we talked about this on our podcast post-draft, but, you know, they traded up a few times and we, and we know that trading up is not necessarily the most valuable thing either, but Mm -hmm. it's also, you know, we look at, we look at second round picks and we, you know, we, we say, Oh yeah, there was Eric Hendricks one year that made a substantial impact. And then there's Mackenzie Alexander the next year that doesn't make any impact. Right. And, and so from what I can see, so a second round pick, you know, you're talking about basically an, a, an expected, you know, approximate value, which is on, you know, pro football reference of about, you know, anywhere from three to five. And that's about, you know, a starters, an average starter season. Um, so, you know, that's not terrible, but it's also if you're thinking about what the expectations so far have been for a guy like Dalvin Cook, if he was an average starting running back, I think Vikings fans would be a little bit disappointed, wouldn't you say? If he was average, yeah, I, th- I think they would. Yeah. I-, I think the expectation based on his talent 
uh, is that he's going to shoot toward the top of the league right away, which, yet, like you're saying, is unfair, but this was called a historically good uh, draft for running backs, right? And he was projected as a top pick, dropped because of some off-field things, and uh, when guys talked about like that and comes into camp and is so far kept himself, as, as far as we know, on the straight and narrow and started to pick up the offense – I think you say to yourself, this guy should be good right away, and running backs can be. You know, it's not like some of the other positions that takes years and years to progress before you're at your peak. Yeah, and that's a good point. So it depends upon whether you view him as a, at, you know, like we had at PFF, him as our ninth uh, best player on our board. So yeah, the ninth best player on the board, you're expecting a little bit more approximate value from that player uh, than you are from, you know, the 41st player. Um, but even then, like even first round picks on average are sort of are still, you know, uh, I think the expectation for them. I mean, we remember the we remember the true busts and we remember the true stars and then we kind of miss the middle. Right. And the middle kind of is kind of where we take our statistical derivations. Um, and even then, like so even then, Dalvin Cook's maybe like a, a, a five, six, seven approximate value, which is, yeah, a pretty good player. Um, but again, I would consider that to be if everything goes right, right? We, you know, for example, Pro Football Focus has him properly rated and he falls 32 positions and he performs like he's rated as a rookie behind an offensive line that's rebuilt. All of those things, if all those things happen, then yes, he can be uh, uh, an upper caliber starting running back. I would put my bets more on him being average at that point. The, uh, Two guys that stand out as maybe immediate impact players through the rest of the draft, Pat Elfline and Bucky Hodges. And I look at both of these guys and say, maybe hold the horses a little bit on them too, because asking a third round pick to start right away on the offensive line is a big ask and doesn't happen very often. And when it does, it usually doesn't go that well. And Bucky Hodges, when you're six foot six, and 240 pounds or 250 pounds and you run a 45740 and you're not a first round pick or a second round pick that probably means that there's some issues there that there's a reason that you drop that far so i don't even know where you pencil in hodges or how you're supposed to pro- project that because i look at him as another one of those guys that's been talked about as the next jimmy graham the next rob gronkowski but until he actually does that, it's going to be hard to believe because of where he was drafted. Yeah, I mean, I think the issue with Hodges is the fact that he played wide receiver his last year uh, at Virginia Tech, like outside receiver. And his previous season, he, he played tight end and was, and was fairly good at it. But it is hard. It, it's sort of like looking – it's sort of like when a quarterback fails at his, you know, at his team that he drafted for – but he's still relatively high regarded. And then he comes to your team and you, you sort of like look at all. So I think about like the mid nineties, you look at like Jeff George going to Atlanta, Jim Everett going to the saints. And you sort of remember like all the good times and forget the reason why they didn't work out where they were. Right. right? right. And, and I think that you alluded to it similarly, like, you know, Bucky Hodges, we look at all the great things, right. The fact that he's almost as, as athletic as a wide receiver. And we ask ourselves like, well, why wouldn't, why didn't he cut it at receiver then? Or why didn't they want to just play him at tight end then? If he's Mm -hmm. such a great tight end, you know what I mean? Like there's questions there that I think will, 
we'll have to wait until the season to have them answer. Now, I think he presents a nice piece if he can learn how to play somewhere like in the slot because uh, I think we talked about this earlier, but like, you know, the old Shermer Eagles with, uh, you know, with uh, Brett Selleck playing like sort of the inline tight end and Zach Ertz kind of playing the slot, you know, move Mm -hmm. tight end, you know, had some good days. Uh, And so it just depends upon whether or not he can elevate himself there. Six round picks have made an impact certainly. um, uh, But it's, it's like kind of few and far between. I'm just looking at the Viking six round picks over the last, over the, over the Spielman era. And you're looking at Blair Walsh, Moritz Bowringer, Antoine Exum, Kendall James, Tyrus Thompson, David Morgan, BJ DeBose, and Jeff Baca, who's who of NFL players. <laughs> right, so right. Uh, I'm, you know, that's that's kind of where I, you know, where I look and see, you know, maybe, you know, maybe we should cool our jets here. Uh, I think you're you're similarly right on the third round picks. I mean, in the in the Vikings, you know, Spielman drafts, they always kind of moved up, so they never really had a lot of third round picks. But you're talking about Josh Robinson, Scott Crichton, Daniel Hunter, Jarek McKinnon. Scott Crichton barely, you know, barely played any snaps in the NFL. Daniil Hunter's so far been a very good player. Jarek McKinnon, decent. Josh Robinson, not so much. So you're looking at like a 50-50 chance of him being a representable NFL player. Uh, and that's, and then you're trying to project that kind of right away, which I think is is a bit sketchy. Is there another guy in this draft that strikes you or that the pro football focus numbers came out that might be intriguing? I mean, they took so many guys after the fourth round that you've got a lot of options there, but... Uh, I'm just curious from what the numbers say about guys in college and, and where they could go in the NFL, if any of the players the Vikings picked really caught your eye. Well, I would, I'm, I'm going to answer this negatively. I think the Ben Gideon pick was one that really made, caught my eye for kind of wrong reasons, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, just because in college he, uh, so I had somebody aptly explain this to me at a conference just yesterday the reason that Jabril Peppers had to play linebacker at Michigan was because Ben Gideon couldn't cover. Right, right. And so so you're talking about a linebacker who in college had to be replaced on passing downs. Um, projecting to the NFL uh, is a little bit – is a little tough to see because in the NFL, I mean, you're you're not running a good defense if your linebackers are run, run defense first guys. I mean, you really right. want – almost to the point of just big, big safeties playing linebacker, like Eric Hendricks is kind of that way, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to guys like Gideon. So I'm wondering where he fits in. I'm wondering, you know, why would they draft him when they drafted um, uh, Kentrell Brothers last year, who seemed to be a pretty good football player? Uh, Why why are they drafting him when, you know, everybody's talked about Edmund Robinson for three years, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Emmanuel Amers is a veteran in the league, those kinds of things. What do they see in him aside from, you know, a little bit of above average athleticism uh, for the linebacker? Uh, that's what I'm really intrigued by. I think, uh, you know, how does Sam, how does the Sam, is it Tacho? How does he move to safety? You know, it, does he offer that's, any help that's there? That's Jack, Jack Tocho. Jack Tocho. I'm sorry. So Sam Acho is a running, <laughs> is a linebacker for the Bears. So is Jack Sure Tocho. he is. He's a magical yeah. linebacker. Yeah. So, so that, so, so that, you know, how, cause you know, a lot of people have been, you know, talking about him on, on uh, apparently not as not enough for me to get his name right. But, um, but, you know, you even think back to that, like at this time last year, everybody's talking about how, 
how athletic J-Ron Curse is and how right. big he is and how impressive he is. And he win, wins Mr. Mankato, and he's an absolute bust out there, um, you know, when he actually gets his opportunity at the plate uh, during the season. And, again, I think that just goes to show you, like, is it our fault for expecting J-Ron Curse to be good? Or is it his fault for playing like a seventh round pick? Well, it's not his. He is a seventh round pick, so it's not really his fault. Right. It's our fault for having silly expectations of him. So, um, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, but I, I do like the idea of, of of at least bringing a safety into the mix and and challenging Andrew Sandejo a little bit because, um, you know, to this point in Zimmer's uh, kind of era here, we haven't really had a second safety that we're really proud of. Did you catch the Simpsons reference in there or no? Are you, are you a Simpsons guy? Uh, I I remember I remember some episodes fondly, mm. but but yeah, I'm not. Uh, I, well, I missed that one. When uh, Lisa goes vegetarian, um, Homer says, "So you're not going to eat ham?" And she says, "No." He's like, "What about pork?" "No, Dad. What about bacon?" And then she says, "They're all from the same animal." And Homer says, sure, Lisa, some magical animal. So that's your linebacker from the Bears. Some magical Bears linebacker. Sure he is. <laughs> he, I, I might have messed up his name, but Sam Acho exists in, in, in the real world. Agree to disagree. <laughs> um, that's right. We can, that's right. We can have, we, we don't have to argue with the same facts, do we? Right, right. No, um, well, no, I think in sports we might have to. Um, the political realm, I'm not so sure. Um, but I, I know what you're getting at there. Uh, all right. Well, that was all the analytics questions I have for you. Let me just ask you one uh, sort of big picture question here. Where does uh, – and we'll talk again, I'm sure, before the season starts. But where does Pro Football Focus have the Vikings this year, big picture overall – what what kind of team is this? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we did have an article posted by somebody else that had him at somewhere around nine wins. Um, I I when I ran my models, I had them somewhere around eight wins. So I think I think that's kind of you know I think they have improved, but at the same time, a lot of things did go right for them weirdly last year. Um, and so I'm not exactly you know. I'm not exactly going to say they have no chance of going 11 and five and doing some damage, but I also say I think that that probability that they go 11 and five and do some damage in the playoffs is probably the same as they go seven and nine, and we're wondering in you know six seven months whether or not they should blow the whole thing up. Right. Yeah. I I uh, ran through their schedule when it came out, and I found ten wins that I think they should have. Not just trying to guess whether they would actually win the game or not, but who should you beat? And I came up with 10, which, you know, I mean, winning all the games that you should win uh, usually doesn't work out. Usually you drop some, though, that maybe you shouldn't, or you win some that maybe you shouldn't. But that's kind of where I have them sitting. But I think it's totally uh, within reason to say anywhere between 7-9 and and 11-5. and I couldn't see them going four and 12 unless they lose the quarterback that, that probably is going to happen. And then uh, lose the backup too. Keenum's probably good enough to get you at least six wins with a, a good defense. Uh, but maybe if you get into Wes Lunt, uh, who's the guy that they have <laughs> randomly brought into uh, training camp because you got to have an extra quarterback. So it's always good to have one named Wes Lunt 
Uh, and that's a perfect note to end on, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I couldn't tell you anything about him. I think he went to Illinois. But, uh, Eric, I, I appreciate all your time. It's always interesting to dig into what the numbers say about the Vikings, and uh, we will do it again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, and thank you all for listening.